Migration Station. This is your host, Oceane, and today we have for you a discussion on second-generation migrants and their experiences. As a second-generation migrant, I feel strongly about the topic of identity construction, the social and systemic discrimination faced by second-generation migrants, and the transnational activities they engage in. I have two guest speakers today, Elena and Juanita, who will delve into this topic with me, drawing from their own personal experiences as children of migrants, We're going to explore a couple of migration theories that we find to be most relevant, specifically the historical structural approach and transnationalism to theorise our discussion. So I'd like to welcome our guests. First, we have Elena. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Just for those listening at home, can you please tell us what your area of interest is? My area of interest is colonialism, specifically colonial rhetoric, and how this continues to shape second generation migrants' identity and experiences of social discrimination in Britain. Colonialism, as you're aware, is central to the historical structural approach of migration, and I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts with you on this subject. Amazing, thank you. Next, we have Juanita. Thank you for being here today. Oh my God, hi. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I've actually been waiting to touch on this topic for a while, and I'm just so glad we can finally have a discussion about it. As a second generation migrant myself, I often feel misunderstood, you know, discriminated against and in some ways torn between two cultures. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would also like to actually expand more and get to know your thoughts on the transnational activities we as second generation migrants are often obligated to participate in. Definitely, definitely we'll be going through that. Thank you both for introducing yourselves. I'm sure your contributions will be valuable to our discussion here today. We hope Thank you. So to begin, I think it's fair to say that one of the most prominent experiences of all migrants is discrimination in one way or another. Mm -hmm. According to new research, people born in Britain to migrant parents are actually more likely to feel discriminated against than first generation migrants new to the UK. Mm -hmm. The black second generation especially are often relegated to outsider status and discriminated against. Let's view this in the historical structural approach to migration, which is the idea that migration is relative to broader processes of structural change and historical phenomena. An aspect of this approach is colonialism and its structural legacies, specifically its restrictive impact on the socio-economic status of second-generation migrants. Thank you, Oceane. I agree with everything that you said there. And two celebrated theorists, Hall and Collins, have also observed that stereotypical narratives related to black people stem from colonialism. Specifically, the rhetoric that originates from colonialism positions black people as culturally inferior. I feel, similarly to Hall, that blackness has been socially constructed to signify lack. Core notes, colonial rhetoric suggests that black people are lacking in higher intellectual faculties. Based on this, The Guardian reported that at the time of the First World War, Western powers were maintained by eugenist ideas of racial selection. This is racial hierarchy that positions black people as having the lowest morality and lowest intelligence in comparison to Caucasians or white people. Such misrepresentations were widely spread in mainstream society by newspapers. Mm-hmm. The Daily Mail reported natives who, were, who are worse than brutes when their passions are aroused as an example of racial eugenics in action. You can see how these articulations produce social anxieties around the presence of black people. True. What I find most interesting is how colonial rhetoric approximates black people to savagery and this makes this group more vulnerable to social controls and social stigma, which is also present in contemporary society. Mm -hmm. 
Collins also brings awareness to the social control that is exercised over black women's fertility. This black feminist Collins argues that during slavery, black women were perceived as being able to produce children as easily as animals. Wow. Mm. This colonial rhetoric denies black women to feel pain in the same way as their white counterparts. And in contemporary society, it positions this group as a drain on the welfare state as they are um, perceived or constructed, as they are represented as having too many children. Colonial representations then were used to legitimize the enslavement of indigenous people. In contemporary society, such representations and discourse continue to shape the lives of ethnic minority individuals, specifically how structural forces such as policing negatively and disproportionately affect black people. Colonial rhetoric then cast this group as hyper-aggressive and uncontrollable. The historical structure approach, as you noted earlier, Oshin, situates contemporary issues of racial discrimination within historical and structural framework. Wow, Elena, thank you so much. That was so interesting. And I actually love the fact that you addressed the impact of stereotypes drawn from the colonial period, which still affects people like us today. You know, as a black woman born in Britain, I still face discrimination daily. I feel my skin color is a key signifier loaded with stereotypes and stigma that define me before I can even present my authentic self. However, you know, not only my race, but also my ethnic background. Right. As a Ghanaian, my name, Echampong, I know, is often rejected when seen on job applications. Um, actually, recently, a study said that ethnic discrimination is actually a, very much a real thing and affects numerous migrants, especially in hiring opportunities. Um, a recent study indicated that ethnic minorities in the UK are less likely to find good work compared to their white counterparts. Perhaps this is due to the colonial discourses surrounding the laziness and intelligence of black people, as you indicated, Eleanor. Mm -hmm. um, and also, this discrimination and hiring often leads to many black British second generation migrants taking precarious jobs, which they're often overqualified for. Right. This is all very insightful, because when we discuss migration theories, especially ones like historical structure, they're often centered around first generation migrants themselves and not actually how they impact their children. Mm -hmm. uh, another interesting outlook regarding uh, historical influences is the colonial military tactics used in policing. So for most of Britain's history, the vast majority of its policing had taken place in its colonies to enforce colonial rule over British subjects. And these particular tactics were extremely violent. And they actually came back to the UK, um, as they call it, uh, they came back home and are used now in contemporary policing to manage gangs. Mm. Um, so Operation Swamp in 1981 was an attempt by police to stop street crime. And they stopped more than 1000 people in six days, particularly young black men. Some say this was actually the trigger of Brixton riots shortly after, which caused 300 casualties. Uh, and resulted in, in the arrest of many young black men. Mm. And even now, stop and search policy still affects black youth the most. Uh, based on recent studies, they are actually seven times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. So 
Um, I suppose this discourse impacts the way second generation migrants view themselves and their identity, right? Yeah. Uh, I came across a recent study actually the other day, which shows that many actually reject the British national identity and they're only interested in the logistical benefits of having a British passport. Mm -hmm. So that includes, you know, being able to travel easier or having better access to housing as opposed to actually having an emotional attachment to Britain. So I'm going to ask you both as children of migrants, do you identify more with British citizenship or your country of origin? Yeah, I mean, what you said deeply resonates with me because I feel like Britain has offered me an excellent education. Um, however, the discrimination and systemic discrimination that obviously affects us um, makes me not view myself as a British citizen. Mm. In fact, I feel deeply connected to my Jamaican heritage in terms of my identity and in my cultural practices, like the preparation of food and music and the use of, uh, like we call it patois, so right. broken language. Right. I imagine it's also reinforced when you travel back, when you go back to Jamaica and visit family. Well, actually I've not visited Jamaica. My dad was born oh, wow. here, um, but some of my aunties were born in Jamaica. Right. So, and naturally I have a very strong relationship with them. Mm. So in that way, that facilitates my connection to my heritage mm -hmm. through right, certain right. family members. Um, and I also cook, like, as I said, cultural foods from the Caribbean. Um, and what's interesting is that my dad, he always used to go to certain um, stronghold communities like Brixton or Thornton Heath to buy specific cultural foods like mm -hmm. um, bun and cheese and hardo bread. So these, I would say, like traditions now I follow. So I now go to these destinations to get specific foods. Right, so they've been passed down. That's really interesting. Oh, also, can I just add yeah, sure. that um, music is really uh, an important part of our culture and buying records is part of my family history, but I also understand it to be like part of a wider Jamaican cultural tradition to mm. go to certain areas and buy records. Right. And Honisa, what about you? Uh, I don't know. I think for me, I would say it's 50-50, you know, as a second generation Ghanaian migrant in the UK, I just feel very connected to my Ghanaian heritage due to the connectedness among Ghanaian migrants in the UK. You know, as a result of the 56 years of colonial rule in Ghana, many Ghanaians actually migrated here. And according to the ONS, Ghanaian migrants are actually the largest migrants in the UK. So actually everywhere I go, no matter what city I'm in, in the UK, I somehow always meet a Ghanaian. Also, there are a lot of Ghanaian shops and restaurants here. So, I mean, I always go to these shops whenever I feel disconnected from home. However, unfortunately, I relate deeply to what you said earlier about actually rejecting the British national identity because due to the discrimination, many second generation migrants actually reject it. However, this alienation is sometimes also felt when I actually visit Ghana, you know? Really? How yeah. so? How, how, how do you yeah, feel Yeah, it's just, you know, like um, our national language, Chi. I speak it, however, sometimes I struggle to hold conversations with family back home. And I fear this language barrier sometimes limits my acceptance in the Ghanaian industry, like just when I visit Ghana. You know, my aunties from back home always refer to me as a British kid from abroad, whereas most uh, British people here in the UK see me as an African kid. And I, I, th I guess this is probably due to growing up. I was brought in a um, predominantly white area and as a black girl I always try to fit in with my white peers and sometimes actually completed neglected my Ghanaian roots and interestingly 
using Goffman's dramaturgical analysis of the self, it can actually be argued that I opted out of Ghanaian culture as a kid. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, Goffman's turn, opt out? Yeah, I was actually very um, intrigued when I heard about um, opting out. So Goffman actually argues that opting out is a process of disidentification in which alternative cultures are adopted in order to separate ourselves from ethnic culture. So I guess me as a child, my full engagement in British cultures whilst neglecting my Ghanaian roots is a prime example. However, you know, now that I'm a bit older, due to my insecurities of actually not being seen as fully Ghanaian, I call my family regularly back home and I just try to engage uh, as much possible in Ghanaian cultures, especially like clothing, sending money back home, just speaking to my little cousins. I just love them so much. <laughs> but what about you, Ocean? Well, I relate quite significantly to this idea that you brought up about split identity, mm -hmm. especially being mixed with uh, three ethnicities. So I have France, Italy and Ivory Coast um, in West Africa. So it means for me that I have multiple countries of origin, but I wouldn't say that I don't belong. I'd say more that I belong to each equally. Um, and this is actually quite relevant to the cultural hybridity theory um, because it addresses that multiple uh, it addresses the multiple societal boundaries that second generation migrants confront. So, according to research, identity is lived through difference via hybridity and the ability to fit in with different groups um, representing different cultures. So, if you think about you have your group here in 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 the UK, and then I also relate to people back home in France and and. Um, wherever. Um, Eleanor, I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned earlier. You said language allows you to feel more connected to your Jamaican roots. Mm -hmm. I think this is really a prominent way that second generation migrants ex uh, exercise hybridity. So mm -hmm. being able to speak to those back home while also being being native, um, a native speaker in the country that you're born in. I personally speak French and can understand Italian. So uh, I believe that it can be a resource for inclusion in, in your country of birth. An example of this, uh, not too long ago, actually, I was hired for a job and uh, the lady who hired me said she was split between myself and another candidate. Although we were equally qualified, I had the upper hand because I had more than one language under my belt. Mm. Wow. So I think this is this is also proof that, um, you know, having this cultural difference can actually be um, an advantage mm -hmm. for yeah, these second generation definitely. migrants. Mm -hmm. Um, you both mentioned actually as well the ways that you connect to your countries of origin through cultural practices that have been instilled by your families. Um, I wanted us to speak a bit more about this because it relates to transnationalism, uh, oh. migration theory, and the way that we maintain contact with people and institutions from our place of origin. I'm curious to explore how do you each engage uh, in transnational activities and do they help or even hinder your experiences as second generation migrants? Um, I think for me, as a second generation Ghanaian migrant, I regularly participate in transnational activities. Um, although some scholars may argue different because they argue that transnationalism is mainly important for first generation and not for their children. However, mm -hmm. despite my British citizenship and the sense of inclusion I feel in the British uh, society, I feel a deep connection with my Ghanaian roots because of how transnational my parents actually are. You know, as indicated in literature, Ghanaian migrants are among the most transnational migrants since they, are, since they often contribute to the de development of Ghana whilst integrating into host countries. You know, actually, my parents, uh, especially my mom, she participates in um, transnational activities through investing in businesses, houses, education, and sending remittances to um, to my Ghanaian families. 
We also, my mom actually also sent money to Ghana for funeral arrangements of family members, as in our culture, funerals are viewed as respect and an ode to the dead. So the bigger mm -hmm. the funeral, the more respect is actually given to the specific family member. Right. I know it's weird, but that's just our culture. No, no, no. Um, but I don't do that though, no. <laughs> me, I think for me, I try to engage in transnational activities by sometimes sending remittances to family members and my little cousins. Um, however, here in the UK, I just try to show my my transnational identity through the clothing that I wear. So I just try and wear like a lot of the shiki jewelry from Ghana. And I also just visit Ghana regularly. I think it's interesting that you mentioned um, remittances because according to the World Bank, um, migrant workers send up to $790 billion actually of remittances uh, yearly, oh, which, wow. is, which is a huge, huge amount. Um, and I feel that globalization also plays a massive role in this, right? Because the advances in communication and transport allows us to send things home and receive cultural items or even just communicate with family through WhatsApp and call abroad packages and all of these ways that we can connect. Mm -hmm. um, Elena, how about you? Yeah, so um, directly related to what you were saying, I engage with transnational activities through sending products back to my auntie in Jamaica through a barrel. Mm -hmm. So you get this huge barrel and it goes in a ship and we often fill it with things because she actually was born in London, now her living in Jamaica, she's not able to get like certain cereals, nuts, yeah. because it's all with extra export costs or you just cannot get it there. So I send my auntie things and um, I also participate in community activities in Caribbean strongholds. So Caribbeans have a strong presence in areas such as Brixton, um, as I mentioned. Um, Hall explores this and says that migrants form distinct communities containing many contacts from their country of origin and retaining connections with social, religious and cultural traditions. These strongholds are evidence of migrants' attempts to find solidarity amongst themselves and maintain cultural ties with their country of origin. However, these communities can also be a source of contention. An example of this is in the Notting Hill Gate, where a Caribbean community, particularly in a restaurant named The Mangrove, was targeted and harassed by police. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was an outcome of the police's racist attitudes towards black people racist attitudes towards black people was also picked up on by Wallace, who found that the mere presence of immigrants from West Indians was contested and they were othered. That's really interesting. It shows us actually the negative side of, of transnationalism, which I think many people disregard in literature. Um, I think it's safe to say that transnational activities allow people to feel closer to their home countries, mm -hmm. um, so much so that some actually choose to migrate back and engage in return migration. Uh, Reynolds argues argues that discrimination faced by second generation migrants is a major cause for return migration, as well as a lack of social mobility. Um, but aside from this, for many, their country of origin embodies stronger familial ties, stronger sense of community, in addition to a more equitable and less, I'd say, pressured existence than that of their country of birth. Um, but also the term return is, is interesting here in itself, because in relation to second generation migrants, even though they may have visited the country of origin on multiple occasions, we're talking about individuals who are completely relocating to a place that they've never lived in, a place that's completely different to what they're used to. Many even experience a culture shock upon return. But what we're really talking about here is ancestral return. 
which represents the closing of a diasporic cycle, so to speak, and represents the final longed-for return to the homeland, which would ultimately sort of give them a sense of home in a, in a spiritual sense. But then again, for some, because they are children of migrants who wouldn't want to move to their country of origin in fear of being viewed as an outsider. Right. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I know that I would struggle going back to Jamaica just because of the mere fact of like my, the way my voice is. I mm-hmm. think that this would really um, be a significant difference in Jamaica and I would be viewed as an English girl. Right, yeah. as other, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, this identity on my voice would like override any cultural heritage that I do have yeah definitely it's, it's definitely not it's definitely not for everyone um but thank you thank you so much for your engagement today ladies I guess I'd like to contribute by asking you both would you ever return to your country of origin and what out of all the things we've discussed today would influence your answer I think for me I would I would definitely go back to Ghana um oh, yeah. yeah even though you know I said about not always feeling accepted because of the language barrier I do feel like I just I just love my country so much and mm-hmm. I, I feel very connected we also have two houses actually in Accra oh, nice. so I would just I, would, I think I'll just be so happy being surrounded by my family members my little cousins and everyone mm. I would definitely return that. Oh. me I don't see myself go into Jamaica. I also don't see myself retiring in the UK. Mm. I can't even imagine um, me wanting to raise children in the UK, especially if they're black boys, because Mm -hmm. of the, sadly, because of the discrimination that they undoubtedly will face. Um, I see myself moving perhaps to Italy or Portugal. Oh Oh, my God, no, that's fun. For me, I would actually not return to any of my countries simply because I wouldn't know how to pick between what to pick between them all. Um, instead, I think I'd, I'd move to Canada. Um, I think it's quite representative of my hybrid identity. So as you know, they, they speak both French and English there. Um, and it's also quite similar to the UK in its culture. So I feel like I'd be able to express more than one part of my identity and fit in a little better than I have maybe here or, or even in my own countries. Well, this has been incredibly insightful. Thank you both for coming. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This has been The Migration Station and please tune in next week where I will be discussing migration policies and detention centres with a guest speaker, Fatima Aziri, a Syrian refugee. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.